This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this session of the Engine Room of Democracy. We're very privileged today to hear from Gene Didero. My dear friend Gene is the eighth Comptroller General of the United States. That means he is the head of the U.S. Government Accountability Office, but he's also the senior statesman, as it were, of a community of public servants that are in the area of inspectors general that keep watch over the way that the government functions. GAO is an iconic institution in American politics. It's nonpartisan. It works for the Congress. It audits and analyzes the activities of the federal government. Frequently, we'd say GAO is the hair shirt of government, the organization that brings to light the uncomfortable truths, things that sometimes governments don't want to confront. I do think most civil servants are honest people, but bad things will happen. Organizations will hide problems. So we have a series of organizations like the GAO that's designed to provide objective analysis of all government activities. So I'm very pleased that Jean Dadaire, who's a superb public servant, is with us today. I start each of these sessions by referencing the Constitution. It's the foundation of our democracy. How does the Government Accountability Office and independent auditors, inspectors general, how does that fit into the Constitution? Well, John, uh, the mission of GAO is to support the Congress in carrying out its constitutional responsibilities and to enhance the performance and accountability of the federal government for the benefit of the American people. Now, with regard to the constitutional responsibilities that we help Congress with, first and foremost is the power of the purse. We help Congress decide how to allocate resources to federal needs, how to prioritize those resources. How's the money being used? Is it having the impact that they thought it would have? Secondly, we help Congress in their legislative and authorizing responsibilities to craft laws, to help the American society and the American people. And are those laws achieving their objectives? Are they being carried out in the most efficient and effective manner? Are there gaps in the laws or, you know, we'll make recommendations to the Congress for amendments to legislation or where there may not be federal legislation, but Congress may want to create new legislation to fill gaps or to deal with emerging problems that are new. And then lastly, 
and very importantly, we help Congress with their oversight responsibility. Mm -hmm. You know, we're in the legislative branch of the government as an independent organization to help Congress oversee the executive branch execution of the laws and provide the checks and balances that are needed there. So we'll look at how the agencies are equipped to carry out their functions, how well managed they are, can they make improvements, and how they carry out their responsibilities. And so it's really a full range of responsibilities. So GAO is very tied to the helping the Congress carry out its constitutional role. That's, I think, very crucial to understand that your role constitutionally is to help and augment the capacity of the legislative branch to do its job. Uh, that's exactly right. And we carry it out in the way, though, John. I like to have it be very constructive and working with the executive branch agencies. Often the executive agencies will take action based on our recommendation without the Congress prompting them. In fact, that's how most of our recommendations get implemented. So I, I try to carry out the role while we're helping the Congress. I also want to help our government broadly improve its operations. Sure, sure. You know, as a congressional institution, of course, that means that you live in that congressional ecosystem. It's Congress is both a governmental institution, but it's also a political institution. So can you share with us how this dimension of governing and politics affects GAO? Well, while we're in the legislative branch, we're an independent organization, John. So report to the institution of the Congress. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of safeguards to ensure we're independent from any political influence. This starts with the appointment of the Comptroller General. It starts with a 10-member bipartisan, bicameral commission that recommends three or more names to the president. The president selects. You have to go through Senate confirmation. And then you have a 15-year appointment. It's one of the longest appointments in our government, and that's to ensure your independence from political influence. You cannot be removed by the president. You can only be removed by the Congress through active impeachment. And so it's very important that this role be insulated from politics. And so, you know, previous to my appointment, I was a career civil servant. I just finished my 47th year in the government. <laughs> working wow. for GAO, and GAO operates, we're not political at all. I'm the only political appointment. The rest are career civil servants, and of course, I came from the career civil service, and we carry out all our responsibilities in accordance with professional standards to make sure that we're objective, nonpartisan, nonpolitical, non-ideological, fair and balanced and fact-based in everything that we do at the GAO. So that's embedded in our core values of accountability, integrity, and reliability, and it permeates everybody in the organization. You know, I, I'm so glad you said that. I had a conversation with Sean O'Keefe recently. Sean, of course, had many different jobs in, in the executive branch, and we were lamenting, you know, the way that the Congress has evolved to become so hyper-partisan. But it does sound like you are thriving inside this very hyper-partisan world, and I think that's quite crucial. Gene, when the GAO was created, it was called the General Accounting Office, and its role was to audit you know, really the financial activities of the executive branch. Your predecessor changed the name to the Government Accountability Office. Why the change? And who does auditing these days? 
Well, uh, GAO next year, 2021, will celebrate its 100th anniversary. It was born out of concern following World War I that the government didn't really have a rigorous budgeting process or an oversight capability to the Congress as government began to grow to help Congress oversee the expenditures of the federal government. So we started out as an organization reviewing vouchers or payments for government expenditures to make sure that they were legitimate. Following World War II, we then took on a more comprehensive financial management role. But as the Great Society came, the war on poverty, federal government's responsibilities grew, we were asked more by the Congress to evaluate programs and activities that were the federal government was uh, becoming more dominated, the federal government's activities. So our world has evolved over the years to meet the needs of this country and to meet the needs of the Congress. And that's very important because GAO continues to evolve today to help Congress provide more insights into science and technology issues. So we've come a long way, John, from our roots 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. But in terms of who does the financial auditing, we still carry out that role. We audit the consolidated financial statements of the federal government. We audit the IRS, and not only their expenditures, but the whole revenue collection operation of the government that finances the government. We audit the Bureau of Public Debt and all the how the federal government finances through debt financing. Most of the audits of individual departments and agencies are done by inspectors general, largely through contracts with public accounting firms. We review all of their work. We've worked out with the inspector generals a standard methodology to use, and then we use that work to then render our opinion on the government-wide financial statement. So we're still a key financial advisor in the traditional role to the Congress. But it's only about 10% of what we do now, John. So most of what we do is evaluate federal programs, regulatory activities, and the full panoply of the federal government, because our scope is the entire federal government. So we look at everything from healthcare to defense to education to environment to you name it. If the federal government's involved, both domestic and internationally, GAO's there. You also, I know, are seen as being the I use this term in a constructive sense, a godfather, you know, for the audit and inspector general community. People look to you for leadership of this community that's designed to be fact checkers for America's democracy. The people that are making sure that our government is reporting things honestly and objectively. So you play a, it's a huge, huge role. You know, so you've mentioned you are an independent agency in the legislative branch. And you're crucial for maintaining checks and balances. But do you ever say to the Congress, you're wrong? That can be a dangerous thing. Well, we do make recommendations to the Congress that they consider amending laws. Just to give you a recent example, John, we made a recommendation in 2015 that the Department of Transportation develop a plan to deal with aviation safety during communicable disease outbreaks. And of course, here we are later in the middle of a pandemic in 2020, and we still, there is no plan. So we recommended that the Congress direct transportation. And the plan hasn't developed because transportation, there's a lot of bureaucratic wrangling. They think Department of Health and Human Services should do it or Department of 
Homeland Security. They think it should be transportation. Yeah. And uh, we said to Congress, look, you need to provide direction in this area. We need a plan to deal with this because the vessel in which the pandemic occurs, as you know, is through the airlines where there's global spread. So unless we deal with this. So we will tell the Congress on occasion, in many occasions, actually, what we think they should consider doing. And it's very important. And we keep track of that and uh, encourage them. I meet on a regular basis with the chairs and ranking members of all the committees. We do work for 90% of the committees in the Congress on a regular basis. So I meet with the committee chairs and ranking members, and I explain to them also, in addition to the formal GAO reports, my advice for oversight issues for them, some of the priorities that they should address, and importantly, legislative changes that should be made. In fact, there are many areas on the highest risk list that we keep for the government that require Congress to legislatively act on. Uh, one example is the Postal Service right now is in the news quite a bit. Oh, yeah. And we've for years said that their business model is not sustainable and they need basic restructuring, which only the Congress can do. And it's also important, John, to realize that in our policies, with regard to the Congress, we treat the chairs and ranking members of the committees the same. So both political parties have access to GAO. And in fact, much of what we do are done in response to bipartisan requests or legislation that says, you know, GAO shall audit these particular functions. So the, the requests from Congress, many come in form of legislation or committee or conference reports, which by definition are bipartisan because mm -hmm. the Congress mm -hmm. as an institution has spoken on this either as a whole or some of their uh, committee bodies. And then we have requests from committee chairs and ranking members, and we treat both the same. And so that helps us lay the foundation. So when we have to inform the Congress, they need to do something, or what they did isn't working the way that they intended, then it's seen as it should be as a nonpartisan suggestion mm -hmm. to help our country move forward. Thank you, Jim. You referenced earlier your role in somewhat overseeing the work of the Inspectors General. Can you just go into that a little bit more deeply? We've heard a lot of reporting this year about the Inspectors General. There's some controversy that swirls around it. These are unusual organizations. I mean, they report both to a cabinet secretary, but they also report to the Congress directly. Could you describe that ecosystem for us and your role in it? Sure. Well, first, we work very cooperatively and constructively with the inspectors general community so that we don't duplicate the work that they're doing. They have responsibilities within the executive branch agencies. As you point out, John, they report to the agency head. Many of them are politically appointed, so they require Senate confirmation, presidential appointment, but they also have reporting responsibilities to the Congress. So often if the Congress asks for an evaluation or fact-based, they may ask GAO and the IG to look at that issue. So we de-conflict to make sure we're using our resources wisely. And I've worked to build relationships with the inspector general community to make sure that we're all effective and operating. They also, it's important to note that they have audit 
responsibilities like GAO, but they also have a huge investigative resources mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of criminal investigators and some have you know authority to execute law enforcement responsibilities. GAO does not have that. I see. The IGs are much more balanced. They maybe have half their resources in audit and half or a substantial portion, it varies by IG, in investigative resources. We at GAO, out of over 3,000 people, only have a handful of criminal investigators. And so if we find some problems, potential fraud or inappropriate behavior, we'll refer it to the IGs for investigative work or to the Justice Department for them to follow up on those activities. Now, from time to time, though, Congress will ask us to go in and evaluate whether the inspector generals are carrying out their responsibilities in accordance with government auditing standards. And the GAO, Comptroller General, has the authority to set auditing standards for the federal government, which define you know, how people need to maintain their independence and proper levels of evidence, et cetera, et cetera. And so, and then we'll look at how the IGs are functioning in particular areas and report our results to the Congress. So we work cooperatively with them, but we can then also be asked to audit their activities as we audit other executive branch activities. And so I try to, you know, maintain a balance that we work together, but, you know, we have an independent responsibility to evaluate them if asked. And we carry that out in the same rigorous manner that we would audit a program official or manager in the executive agency as well. Yep, I can remember some times when you were looking at the Defense Contract Audit Agency and found them woeful in a few areas, and it was a a traumatic thing for them to work through. Gene, let me just, as an independent agency and as really having these transcending responsibilities, who oversees GAO? Yes, well, we report to appropriation committees in the Congress both on the Senate and the House. It's the Committee on Legislative Branch, which oversees all the legislative branch activities in the federal government. We also have oversight committees. That's the Committee in the Senate on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. And on the House, it's the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. And those, I mentioned earlier, the commission that appoints the Comptroller General or identifies candidates, rather, Both the chair and ranking members of our oversight committees are on that 10-member congressional commission. So I don't report to any one particular person in the Congress, but there are these four committees that we are accountable to. We also have an annual financial audit by an independent public accounting Mm -hmm, firm. mm -hmm. And I have an outside audit advisory committee of, of people that are financial managers and lawyers, et cetera. And they work with our outside auditors. GAO also, we're talking about by the IGs, has an inspector general just for GAO. And so this cool. is an independent person. And I asked when I was acting controller general that we create an inspector general in statute. So our inspector general has all the same authorities and responsibilities that other inspector generals do. And they report to the Congress, their reports and audits of GAO. And so we have that very important function as well. And then from time to time, we will have outside peer reviews done. We usually have national audit offices in other countries since we audit everybody within the United States. And they come in and make sure that we're following our quality assurance process, 
and our professional standards, and then give us an opinion on how well we're doing that so that there's reasonable assurance that we are reporting objectively and uh, following professional standards to the Congress and to the country. So we have a lot of checks and balances. In fact, some of the people in GAO think we have too much audit into the, <laughs> of the GAO, but, but uh, as a head of the agency, it's important. And yeah. we have to live by the words in which we audit others. You know, we have to subject ourselves to the same transparency and the same accountability. And every year we issue a performance and accountability report that's made public that includes the opinion of our auditors. And I'm proud to say we have a clean opinion on our financial statements and our controls and how we operate GAO. And it includes what resources Congress gave us and what impact those resources have had. I hadn't thought about this before, but you just mentioned your conversation with the private sector auditing ecosystem. Could you describe that? Because government auditing and government accounting is so different from private sector accounting. But what's the nature of the conversation you have with kind of the organizations that represent the auditing community? Well, since we set auditing standards, John, for uh, federal government activities, there are entities the Public Oversight Accountability Board, the PCAOB, sets auditing standards for the private sector for publicly traded companies. And then there's the Institute of Certified Public Accountants, the AICPA, that sets auditing standards for companies other than the PCAOB, you know, non-public uh, companies, which include many, many audits of small businesses. So we meet on a regular basis to coordinate our auditing activities, particularly since there are a lot of international developments in setting auditing standards, both for the private sector and the public sector. So we regularly coordinate to make sure that we are learning from one another, we're sharing our experiences, and our standards are relatively consistent. In the auditing standards that GAO sets to do financial audits of public sector activities, we incorporate by reference all the AICPA standards as a starting point, and then we add new standards that are unique to the federal government's operations. But how you audit an asset in the private sector or cash is the same as you audit it in the government, yeah. <laughs> but, but some things are unique, particularly the controls that, that need to be in place. So we have that relationship. I have a relationship with the AICPA and others. Like, for example, in this pandemic relief legislation, Congress has set up a paycheck protection program. And this is to help small businesses and provide loans to them, to keep people on the payroll. And the AICPA has been consulting with these small businesses because they audit them or they provide financial advice. And so I outreached to the executive director and president, and I said, well, we'd like to talk to you guys and learn what challenges the companies are facing. And so they help us do our audit work in that sense. And then many of the public accounting firms are contracted not just to do the federal government's audits, they're contracted to audits of state and local governments that receive federal funds. If they're auditing federal funds, whether it's at the federal, state, or local level, they have to use GAO's auditing standards. So I involve them and the IGs and state and local auditors when we set the standards of an advisory committee that helps us set those standards. So there's a very close professional relationship there. 
Very interesting. Gene, I know that you've mentioned GIO has such wide-ranging responsibilities. You said that you don't have investigative authorities, but I do know that you have some specially assigned duties of adjudication that have been given to GAO, for example, on contract awards. Would you describe that for us? Sure. We have a procurement law division in GAO of dozens of attorneys, and that basically, if someone bids on a government contract, does not win that contract award, and feels that the federal agency did not properly follow procurement policies and practices, they can appeal to the GAO and ask that their formal protest. GAO has to give a response within 100 days, and we sometimes will hold hearings to hear from both parties and both the contractors as well as the federal agencies, and then we'll render a decision that we either upheld the protest, sustain it, or deny the protest. And maybe the agency did everything properly, and, and there was just not a good debrief of the contract. So we try to resolve in those areas. On a regular basis, we get over 2,000 of these protests wow. every year at the GAO. And we resolve, have to resolve within the time frames. Now, our decisions are not binding on the executive branch legally. However, if the executive branch does not follow our decisions, we have an obligation to report to the Congress that they did not. And it's very rare that they do not. And we'll report on that base. So it's our procurement lawyers are very well respected in the procurement community. Sometimes when the contractors exercise their option to go to the courts, you know, they can come to GAO or they can go directly to the courts. Sometimes the court will ask for an advisory opinion from our GAO lawyer. So that's how well respected they are. So I, I'm very confident we carry out those responsibilities very, very carefully. But it's a big part of GAO's responsibilities, as you point out, but the Aside from the procurement community, and knows it well, it's not very well widely known to the public. Right. Several times I've been, you know, involved with things where it's gone to you, and I will say you were always upheld because people said, okay, there was a fair reason for the way you ruled, and uh, you deserve high marks for that. There's even, I think, a plaintiff's bar that's emerged around your, <laughs> <laughs> your process. So it's really quite impressive. Gene, can I just ask, you know, because you are auditing and evaluating the executive branch all the time. And there's political sensitivity to that, of course. How does GAO enforce its judgments? Is it just kind of a name and shame sort of a thing, or is it only through congressional action? How would you say GAO enforces its recommendations if it can? Yes. Well, first and foremost, John, I like to try to get our work implemented through what I call the power of persuasion, which is the strength of our argumentation, the strength of our analysis, and to convince the executive branch agencies to voluntarily implement our recommendations. Mm -hmm. So I maintain dialogue with them. I meet with agency leaders as they come into their positions and open up a candid, constructive dialogue with them explain. We're very transparent. They get an opportunity to comment on our draft reports before they're finalized. Their comments are included. And many times in the comments, they'll agree with our recommendations and we'll implement. In fact, that happens a vast majority of the time. 
And so most of our work is done that way through convincing people that because we're objective and we don't have an agenda and we're trying to help them better serve the American people, they'll implement the recommendations voluntarily. Now, that doesn't always work. Sometimes there are differences of opinion. And here, would turn to the Congress. The Congress is really the enforcement mechanism for GAO recommendations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if the agencies do not do that, often in appropriation legislation, Congress will mandate that they implement the GAO recommendation or provide additional direction for them to the agencies to implement GAO recommendations or to explain to them why not. Mm -hmm. In fact, the Congress within the last two years has passed what they call the GAO and the IG Act. So every agency now, beginning with this budget submission for 2021, has to include in their budget submission all open GAO recommendations and IG recommendations and what they're doing Interesting. to implement those recommendations. I've testified before the Congress about how they can provide more support to implement GAO's recommendations. And so they're very interested in that. And then there are two other ways. One is if there's a problem, we will include it on our high risk list. We've been doing this since 1990. It's probably the longest running bipartisan supported effort in the federal government's history. It's been used to help frame the agendas for the Congress or oversight agendas, but also importantly, it's been used in every president's management agenda somehow since the Clinton administration, mm -hmm. up including the Trump administration. And so it's, it's very helpful in saying these are the biggest problems in the government, the biggest risk, and here's what you need to do to implement it. And sometimes, even though agencies will agree to implement the recommendation, they're just hard to implement. They need more leadership commitment. They need more resources. They need more people or as I mentioned earlier, they need Congress to pass legislation. So that's getting more transparency to those big issues that are out there. Then I started in the last five years, John, to send a letter to every agency head every year to say, here's how many GAO recommendations you've implemented. Here's how many are left. But of those that are left, here's the ones I think you personally to the agency mm -hmm. need to focus on, and we call them priority recommendations. Because in my conversations with agency leaders over the years, you know, I'll say we have dozens, if not hundreds, of recommendations from GAO and the Inspector General. Well, you know, where do we start? You know, particularly somebody coming in new. So I'll say, you know, here are the top priorities. Here's the top 10 things that you should focus on that would have the biggest impact on saving money improve your operations, eliminate your vulnerabilities, because many leaders come into government and while they have a policy agenda they want to implement, get sidetracked because of operational issues that cause big problems for them and drain a lot of time and attention away from those matters. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think for many of the political appointees who do come in, they're not there long enough to even know how it works. And so that's why your recommendations are even more important because they just, you know, they're trying to figure it out and they just don't have background. They tend to think more about the policy dimension of their role rather than their 
management responsibilities to make sure that the government works well. So it's crucial what you do, Jane. Let me just ask one last thing, if I could, and that is how does GAO work in the classified world? You know, where there are lots of things that the federal government does that by definition have to be undertaken in secret, whether it's building special things, whether it's conducting special undertakings, whether it is just diplomacy in general, you know, that we cannot let everything be discussed widely and openly, but we need to have this oversight. Could you describe how GAO functions in that world? Yes. For many years, we have done classified work in the defense area, particularly on, you know, weapon systems or other military operations and other things that the Congress wants the GAO look at. And we provide and issue our reports in a classified form to the Congress, give classified briefings. Our people have all the background checks and the clearances necessary to do work at all levels of clearance in the federal government. And often we were asked to also issue a, a public version of that report. So we work with the agencies to make sure nothing gets devolved that shouldn't, but it gives a higher level kind of view so the public can understand more. And Congress required us to list now all classified reports that we issue on a website so other members of Congress can get access to those reports. But the public can't, but it includes more visibility. So this is a wide range of, of operations. For many years, though, John, we did not do work in the intelligence community because we lacked support from the intelligence committees in the Congress and cooperation from the intelligence community. But that changed about seven years ago, and Congress required the intelligence community come up with a directive that assumed cooperation with GAO, not the reverse. And so I met with Director Clapper, and our two organizations worked out a procedure. I met with Director Coates following that. I just had a meeting with Director Radcliffe, who's new into the position. And our work in the intelligence community is growing. And we're not looking at sources and methods, those type of things, but we're looking at how they're managing their operations, their facilities, their systems, their people. So classic management functions that GAO is well, well suited to, to do because they are subject to some of the same management challenges that civilian agencies are as well. And so there's a lot of best practices that GAOs developed that we can bring to them to help them manage their operations. We also work with the inspector generals in that community to work with them. I just recently met with the person that's an inspector general for the Defense National Intelligence Organization. And so to coordinate our work with the IGs in that community as well, as we talked about earlier. So our work in that area now is growing. And this was a factor of when 9-11 happened back 2001, more, more things got classified. And now we have a lot of competition from other countries, and so even more things are getting classified now. And so it's very, very important for GAO to give Congress insight into how those resources are being used and how those management functions are being carried out in the agency. So I I'm very pleased, John, that we've built up a good reputation in the intelligence community and are working our way there, as well as in their classic historical role in defense and other, the energy area, and there's a lot of nuclear work that we do mm -hmm. now that 
Congress is refurbishing our nuclear network. And uh, of course, law enforcement activities are sensitive as well. We do a lot of work there and the Department of Homeland Security and their efforts, counterterrorism efforts. So we do a lot of work in that arena. And I'm very pleased that we have the support now of the Congress and the cooperation of the executive departments and agencies to carry out that work. This has been a splendid discussion. The purpose of these podcasts is to help American citizens understand how rule of law works and how much it's a foundation of how our government works. I think it's probably even more important now because there's a lot of cynicism that's been growing in the country about the government. And I think that GAO is the organization that helps Americans feel confident that their government is functioning appropriately. And it's important to have there to provide reassurance for all of us that in this very complex, far more sophisticated time, that there are the foundations of honesty, accountability, transparency, due process that's being honored uh, in this very large and complex government. So, Gene, I'm, I'm very grateful. And let me just say, any concluding comments before we close down here? I just want to reiterate how seriously GAO takes its responsibilities. We believe we're the taxpayer's best friends in addition to helping the Congress carry out its responsibilities. Last year, as a result of implementing our recommendations, the country had financial benefits of over $214 billion, which is about $338 back for every dollar of GAO that's spent on us. And we had over 14 other other benefits that involve public safety and helping in efforts to prevent veteran suicides, helping to oversee nursing homes, helping to improve oversight of medical products and food safety. And so we're much more than a classic financial oriented agency. It's more in how can we help the public. And so I'm glad I had this opportunity, John, today to explain to people how we support Congress and the rule of law and GAO's role in the constitutional arena and how important our responsibilities are. But we have a very dedicated and talented workforce that's committed to professional, nonpartisan, fact-based work to help our country improve itself on a continual basis. So thank you for the opportunity and the time today. I enjoyed being with you as always. Thank you, Gene. 99 years going strong, and we'll celebrate next year the 100th for the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Gene Dodaro, a real patriot, a real public servant. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, John. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 